great way to do that. Um, yeah. Oh, well, good morning. Yeah. I feel like um, I was expecting May to be like just slow and relaxed, and I was dumb. And it is not. It is not slow and relaxed. I think you're probably feeling the same way. You're just like, oh, yeah, that's right. We have to sprint towards the end of the school year so that we can get to relaxation, which will actually just be a lot of vacations and stuff like that and planning logistics. So this is what we do. So I'm a little bit discombobulated. So I think we should pray just for my own sake, if, if not for yours, uh, just to sort of get ready. So why don't we, we just pray here? Uh, Lord, I just ask you to settle us down as we just want to listen to your word and listen to what you have to tell us this morning as we open up scripture and just like uh, let you lead us. And so Lord, just, just, yeah, speak to us, I pray. Uh, Lord, uh, let us hear hard things, you know, things that we might not want to hear if, if they're in there, Lord. Let's not hear like um, guilt and shame, but like the opportunities, the invitations that we have um, to, to grow and to, and to build our lives upon you. Um, Lord, we want, we want the good things, the good invitations, Lord, the things that come along with life with you, Lord. We want those things. And so we ask you, Jesus, uh, to bless us as we dig in this morning in Jesus' name. So, uh, we are going through, we've been making our way through the book of Acts, and today we're just going to be wrapping up Acts chapter 19. Um, and this is like our fourth week in Acts 19, which is, we normally go a much, much uh, quicker clip, um, but there's so much going on in Acts chapter 19. And what we're seeing today is this, the conclusion of Paul's time in Ephesus, a, a city um, in what is now... Um, you know, modern-day Turkey. Uh, his, his ministry there is wrapping up. And Paul's time, as we've seen throughout the whole the book, like, and it's particularly Acts 19, Paul's time in Ephesus has been astounding. Um, it, this is sort of, and I've said this a couple times already, it's the high-water mark of Paul's um, ministry and of the whole narrative of the book of Acts, right? There's, there's structure in the book, and this is kind of the peak and after this point, we kind of are just on the way out. The book begins to wrap up. But this is sort of the peak of, of, of ministry for Paul. And what's happened is Paul has spent years traveling around the Roman Empire. This is his third kind of loop, leaving Jerusalem and, and heading out into the Roman Empire. His third time through, he's been in Ephesus. And as he's, um, as he's there, he passes through Ephesus, and something compels him to camp out in Ephesus and, and spend a long time in that city doing ministry there. Um, so first he, he spends three months in the synagogue there in Ephesus, which is always kind of his habit. Whenever Paul went into a new city, he, he was a very religious Jew, and so he would go find the other religious Jews who he fit with culturally, right? And he would open up the Old Testament scriptures, you know, the, the holy books of Israel to them, and he would teach through them. And so he spent three months teaching uh, in the synagogue, telling them, trying to convince these Jewish people that the, that the Messiah that they've been waiting for, this person that, that God had told them in the Old Testament was going to come and save them and deliver them and, and kind of reestablish them and bring them into the, like, the, like their next step on the way of, of following God. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is that Messiah that they had been waiting for. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is, is Lord. He's the one who has come to establish the kingdom of God and to, to, to establish the rule and reign of God over the whole earth, right? And he's trying to convince them of this because it's, like, kind of hard for them to say, because, well, Jesus, like, what kind of king is he? He's not, like, 
king like Caesar's king, right? And so Paul is trying to convince them and persuade them of the kingdom of God. And he spends three months arguing the scriptures with them until they finally just say, okay, we've heard enough. We're not interested anymore, which is kind of like, three months is a long time. It's kind of longer than Paul had ever had in terms of him being able to continue to go back into a synagogue and, and listen, right? And so he spends three months. They finally kick him out. But, but Paul doesn't leave Ephesus at that point. He actually spends a remarkable amount of time. He spends two years um, st st tarrying on in Ephesus after that event. Um, he, he probably because those who, who wanted to hear him, those Jews who did want to hear them, uh, really at, wanted him to stay, and also because many non-Jews, people who, who weren't of his culture and of his tribe, were also showing up and wanting to hear about what, what this message was that Paul was preaching. And so, so many people begin to come to Ephesus, and Paul rents an amphitheater, like a, like a, a uh, the school of Terence. It's like a lecture hall. Um, so he rents a lecture hall, and for two years, he just teaches every single day. All these people who are coming to him, trying to find out about what, what is this Paul guy talking about? What's his message? What's, what's the message that he's proclaiming? What's this, this kingdom of God and, and Jesus? What's, what's he talking about here? And so for two years, people just, just come, and they seek him out. And as people start to understand this message, and they start to understand what Jesus is doing and how the kingdom of God is, is being advanced despite uh, the appearances of things, amazing things start to happen, happen in Ephesus, right? We, we read that about that in chapter 19. There start to be miracles, and people are healed, and, like, demons are cast out, and, like, the spiritual forces, and, which in Ephesus, like, it was a very spiritual place. There was a lot of... Um, idolatry, like like pagan worship, pagan not as a negative thing, just like what Roman culture was. There's a lot of idolatry going on, and there's a lot of like magic going on in Ephesus, and w w we have these accounts, we talked about them the last couple weeks, where like demonic forces are acknowledging the power of Jesus, right? And they're, they're recognizing that the Je something special about Jesus, and, and the people who have started to believe in Jesus, these these Ephesians, like, they realize, oh man, this whole spiritual thing, this, these whole claims that Jesus makes are really serious. And so they, they take their magic books, right? The things that are really valuable in, in Ephesian culture, and they burn them up because they realize, oh no, these things are like competing with what with, with Jesus like says that he's Lord over. Like, these are like an affront to Jesus if he really is powerful like he says. And so they burn these magic books. It costs them greatly. They, they turn away from their idolatry, worshiping false things, and they turn to Jesus. And the result of that, the result of a church that's dealt with idolatry is just, is just um, amazing. Like this church, the Ephesian church, is just on fire. And it keeps growing, and God's word is moving forward. And it's just a remarkable work that God's doing there. Because these people are really loving the Lord with their whole heart and dealing with all the stuff that would get in the way, their, their idolatry. And as that work is established, Paul starts to, you know, after two years, like just seeing like, okay, this church is growing and things are fine, he starts to make a plan to leave, and just as he's preparing to go, something happens. We read about it here in Acts 19, uh, verse 23. Uh, so it says this, uh, about that time, there was a major disturbance about the way, and the way is just kind of like what Christians, the Christian movement went as. It's called the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. 
And when he had assembled them, as, uh, as well as all the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our, pro our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in, uh, but in almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. And not only do we run the risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be despised in her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. So there's a reaction to this move of God in Ephesus. And it's not surprising uh, that there would be a strong reaction. Because obviously as, as Paul's ministry is growing, and as all these people are kind of like, going full on loving Jesus and, and serving him, leaving their idols behind, people notice. People are noticing. And not just because like people are, are, are like talking about Jesus now, whereas they used to be talking about somebody else, like the other gods, but because this wave of allegiance is having an economic impact in, in, in Ephesus. Impacts that were particularly felt by this one man named Demetrius. And as like the text explains, Demetrius, he was, a, he was a silversmith, right? His job was to make little shrines to Artemis that kind of look like the temple to Artemis. And I have actually a picture of what that would look like, a recreation of what that looked like. Uh, because, because in Ephesus, this temple was sort of the center of culture and life there. They worshipped the god, the Greek god Artemis, or known as Diana in the Roman pantheon, same god, different name. Um, and, so, and so this guy, he was a silversmith. His job was to make little shrines to Artemis, and he supplied those shrines to the local craftsmen who would make idols. And they were just kind of like little trinkets that tourists and people who were, you know, coming from afar to worship Artemis would, would purchase. And it was part of their, their worship. Because Ephesus, yeah, it was a known for a place. It was known as a place where, where Artemis was worshipped. And, and the church, uh, as the church is really on fire and, and like, you know, in a good way, not like on fire. Um, like, as, as, as the church is really excited and, and this Jesus movement grows, Demetrius realizes he, he and, and all his people who are involved in this Artemis worship have a problem. And it's, first, it's an economic one, but it's not a simple economic problem. It's not like another silversmith down the road opened up shop, and so he's got to lower prices and compete, you know? It's not that kind of, uh, like a normal market competition. It isn't an inflation or supply chain problem like, you know, we've been dealing with the last couple of years. It's not a simple economic problem. No, he realizes he has a much bigger problem. And so he gathers everyone together uh, who are in that same line of work, who probably also have the same problems, and he explains to them the issue. And says, uh, I have a, a, again the text in here, he says, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this, this Paul, this guy who's talking about Jesus, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. So this is the issue that we're having. It's way bigger than just a, a, a short-term economic little, little slump. The problem isn't that Artemis is less popular than she once was. The problem isn't that there's a new idol in town named Jesus, right? And people are worshiping that little idol instead of the old idol Artemis. The problem actually 
is that Paul and Christians are undercutting the entire idea of idol worship. It's not just they're worshiping a different idol. It's that they're saying, actually, idols aren't even a thing. These aren't gods. These aren't gods. Now, I think it's actually really hard for us to appreciate in our culture, in our time, how significant that is to a Roman. The fact that these Christians would just say, not just like, we have a different God, his name is Jesus, he's, he's our idol, right? As opposed to your idol. They would just say, actually, no, all idolatry is just, it's nothing. It's just false. We have trouble appreciating how significant that would is to Rome. But it's like this, look, Roman culture... And the whole Roman Empire, it's like this little box we have up here. You probably have a box like this in your garage. Um, and it looks like this. Um, there we go. That's what it looks like, right? Roman culture was like this box. The Romans were proud of themselves because they had created a culture and a way of life. They were strong. They had rule of law, the largest empire up to that point ever. They had military might. They had social order. Rome was a big, powerful box. But the Roman box had a ton of little compartments. That's how it got so big. And as Rome expanded and grew as an empire, what they did is they incorporated people who worshipped different gods and had different sort of cultural values. And what they did is they said, we're going to make you, we're going to take you into our giant box, but because we're very generous and kind, we're going to give you a little compartment, and you can do whatever you want in that compartment. And that's how Rome grew. That plus a really terrifying military, <laughs> right? A really terrifying military, but when they would go to take over a place, they would say, look it, we could kill you, or you can come into the box and you'll have a compartment and you can worship your gods and it'll all be fine. You can come into the box. And most people said, please, put me into your box Give me a little compartment, and then you could have freedom. And Rome would have been happy to add Jesus to the long list of idols that were worshipped. To just give Jesus a little compartment in the Roman box. Had that been Paul's kind of message, worship Jesus, don't worship Artemis, worship Jesus, but like, like you know, just like a little idol, that would have been fine. Demetrius would not have any cause to complain to the people. If they had just started worshiping Jesus, just like they were worshiping all the other idols over there. Just a competing idol, pretty normal in Rome. But worshiping Jesus is not like worshiping any other idol, at least according to Paul. Paul's message was decidedly not, hey, we've got this really cool God. His name is Jesus. He's the real God. He's better than Artemis. Better than the other gods. Why don't you just give him a try? You know, just fill your, fill your little compartment up with this God in, instead. Paul's message was way bigger than that. It was expansive. It was that the God who created heaven and earth and everything in it, including all governments and all powers, is coming into the world to set things right. And he's doing that through the unlikely means of taking on flesh, coming down, being in a body, being born into a backwoods tribe of Israel, an unpowerful place 
amidst a giant empire from an unimportant family who and he himself is not particularly impressive even in that family but what he's going to do is he's, he's going to teach with great wisdom he's going to set people free he will demonstrate the power of god he will be loving and gracious and kind he will confound the wise and religious people of his day with his great understanding and the 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 authenticity of the message which he's speaking and those religious people for all their faith like are going to be just just baffled by him because even though they keep saying they believe in god what they really believe in is a god who will do nothing in the world they believe in this god who's like just like sits in a little box a little compartment who isn't going to change anything or do anything and, and that, that, that unassuming guy with great power and great strength, God in the flesh, is actually going to come, and his ministry is going to come to its high point as he dies on a cross at the hands of the most powerful empire in the world. And suddenly what's going to happen is he's going to flip that power on its head by rising again from the dead to prove that those Roman authorities, any authority who would come against him, actually... It's just an illusion. It doesn't mean anything at all. He rises and he will unleash a movement into the world, a peaceful invasion of his kingdom into the world. A kingdom where people who are just as unimpressive and just as undeserving and just as far away from anything that we would think of as good and valuable in the world are welcomed in and called children and given all the honors and privileges of being invited into a family. And he's filling his people, sending them out into the world, not like as, with, as like an invading army that's going to take over Rome, but as people who are filled with confidence that they are serving and walking with the God who is real, who's created all things, and that that God is on their side, and they can simply trust in his power in the midst of great powers of the day be they military or religious or whatever thing. And they are experiencing that the more they live their lives and trust in Jesus and understand that he is not just like a little God who sits in a little compartment that Rome has defined, but he's even above the greatest empire in the world and above anything that they could fear or trust in over him. The more they trust in this Jesus, the more they take risks of faith defying the power of Rome and not just the power of Rome, but all the things that they would fear, things like, like death. <laughs> Throwing themselves, the more they throw themselves on the power of God, the more they experience joy and life and peace. And it makes no sense to anybody. It makes no sense in the world. See, Paul's message was not Jesus is just like any other idol. He'll sit in a box. He'll be nice. The gospel of Jesus is a total rejection of the box, the little compartment, and the things that we think are like inevitable and the true powers of this world. Like Colossians 2, 9 through 15 says this. It's a really, really, really astounding verse. It says this. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. All, like Jesus is God himself. Everything about God is, is in him, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Skipping ahead a little bit at the end there, he disarmed the rulers and authorities.
the, the, the good news, the message that Paul preached was powerful. And it's this. Thank you so much. But we Christians, thank you, Rome. You're so kind. But we, we don't just need another little compartment in the box. We don't just need to be like, like just replace the old idols with, with a new idol that's totally subservient to Rome and to, and to all the things, all the rulers and authorities, the, the print powers and principalities. That we don't, that what he's saying is, is that we don't, even, we don't even need the box. The box isn't real. The box, the Roman Empire, Roman culture, principalities and powers, all these things that we think are just like so powerful, even the power of death, we just, we're just going to say thanks, but no thanks. We don't, we don't need those things because we're actually serving a Jesus who has proclaimed victory over all that stuff. He's above all that stuff. And all these things that we think are so necessary, are, they're just actually an illusion. All the power of Rome and Roman culture, they are actually ultimately nothing. There's, there's nothing to them. And so, no, Jesus will not sit in your little compartment. He's going to sit above Rome and above Caesar and above all the things that we think are just like we are stuck in. And the result of that message, as it's embodied and lived out in Ephesus, as the church just says, we don't even need to, like, hold on to our magic books anymore. Like, we don't need, like, to, to, to grasp onto these spiritual powers because we serve the one who has all power and all might and who can protect us and, like, is, is like, going to be on our side and we just continue to trust in him. As, as, and they just, so they just burn their books. And as, as people do that and as they fully commit to living um, in the mercy and power of God, something happens in Ephesus, and that's a riot happens in Ephesus, right? People say, as, as, as the Christians are just casting off the box of Rome and the box of Roman culture, a riot ensues. And this riot is really a riot. It's a joke. Right? Isn't that a joke? Yeah. Um, that was a knee slapper. It's, I didn't have an itch. Uh, and it's because it's pretty funny when you stand back and you read about the riot, okay? Because let's, let's, let's look what happens at this riot. So Demetrius gets everybody together, and he gets them mad. He says, because they're just, like, acting like idols aren't a thing, and they're acting like Rome doesn't matter, and all our culture is just, like, not that important. And don't they know that it's really important, and we're a really great empire? And our idol system is, like, the best idol system that we ever could come up with? And how rude of him to just say that it's like they're nothing. No respect. No respect at all. All right, so he gets everybody together and says, they're not respecting us. And he says this. Uh, it, it goes on. When, when they had heard this, and they were filled with rage and began to cry out. The group of people, they are filled with rage. They begin to cry out, and they say, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. And although Paul wanted to go in before the people, his disciples would not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of, of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading him not to venture into the amphitheater. Some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not even know why they had come together. And some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front, motioning with his hand. Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people, but when, the, when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! I mean, this is a really, really funny scene. 
because this isn't exactly a robust exchange of ideas, right? There's not a great debate going on here. They just for two hours shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, like it's going to make a difference. <laughs> I just like, I guess, like after like 10 minutes of that, you're probably like, we're going to keep going? Okay, we're going to keep going. And then it's like, like half an hour, like I'm starting to get a little parched, but okay, we'll keep going. And then two hours later, <laughs> two hours later, they're still going at it. It's just anger in search of a source, directed at whoever or whatever. But no one can actually figure out what the big problem really is. See, because Demetrius knows it's a big problem that these Christians are rejecting idolatry. He, he has a deep sense of that. He, he like, just kind of has a visceral reaction. Because he gets that what they're doing is they're trampling Roman values in a way that people have never done before. Who could ever do that to Rome? They're rejecting the Roman box, but no one can really put their finger on why that's so bad, right? So they just yell, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. That's their argument. And it goes on, right? Things settle down after two hours. Somebody says, we got to do something about this because, you know, people are going to strain their vocal cords. Um, okay, so it goes on. He says, when the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said... People of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardians of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him uh, have a case against anyone, the courts are in session, and there are proconsuls, Roman kind of government officials who, who hear trials. Um, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run the risk of being charged with rioting for what happened here today, since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So the city official, after two hours of this riot, for no cause, just finally comes in and says, Look, respect. Get that you're a little upset, but let's just level. Does anyone know why we're here? <laughs> like, does anyone know why you've been screaming this for two hours? Because the facts are this. These people you're mad at, they didn't rob the temple. And they're actually not going around even trash-talking Artemis. They're not, like, having an Artemis problem. They're not trying to start beef. It's not that at all. This whole riot is just kind of searching for an excuse. It's a pointless thing. So let's go ahead and go home, or else basically he makes some threats, <laughs> some, some understood threats, or else I'm going to call the soldiers in here, and they're going to deal with it their way, right? Because we have order in Rome. That's what we do. So he dismisses the people, and the people go home. See, this riot, I think, is fascinating, because on one level, it is totally unserious. Like, it's totally unserious. This mob just wants blood. They don't really know why uh, Paul's disciples don't let him go, because they're, they're pretty sure that, man, if he goes there, they're just going to beat him up. But on, uh, but on another level, um, like, oh, on another level, like, like, like this, this riot is just not about anything. It's just about the fact that these Christians believe in a God whose authority is not constrained by Rome or, or, or Roman, the Roman pantheon or Roman culture. And 
while the city clerk does a good job of pointing out that the illegitimacy of the anger, that doesn't get Roman Christians off the hook. In fact, this, like, tension is, like, going to continue on for another 300 years until the Edict of Milan, when Constantine sort of officially tolerates Christians in the Roman Empire. For 300 years, Rome and Christianity have this very uneasy relationship. Not because the Christians are blaspheming all these gods in Rome. They're not going around trash-talking the gods. They're not being rude or disrespectful to Roman ways. They haven't started a political party or their own cable news channel where they're, you know, talking bad things about it. It's not a reference to anything contemporary at all. Um, They haven't done any of that stuff. They aren't protesting in the streets. They aren't trying to assassinate Caesar. But they've simply been people who've been captivated by Jesus. They love Jesus. And they understand that Jesus has proclaimed himself to be above all of this. He's God in the flesh. He's he's overcome principalities and powers and many like authorities. Like everything is subject to him. Even though it may not appear to it, they just believe, no, it's true. Like he really is. He's the boss. And they begin to live as if it's true that Jesus is Messiah, King, that his authority and his power is what's ultimately true. Despite the appearances of Roman culture and what, what, what Rome seems to think of itself, they start to live as if, man, Jesus is, is the one to whom I am ultimately accountable on all things, in every level. Leslie Newbegin explains the problem of the church this way, in this Roman context. He says, the church could have escaped persecution by Rome, and, and right, it came and went, it came and went for 300 years. Could have uh, escaped persecution by Rome if it had been content to be treated as a cultus privatus private worship cult. One of the many forms of public religion, right? Just another little compartment in the box. But it was not. Its affirmation that Jesus is is Lord implied a public universal claim that was bound eventually to clash with the cultus publicus of the empire. That is the the, the Roman system of idolatry. The confession Jesus is Lord implies a commitment to make good that confession in relation to the whole life of the world. Its philosophy, its culture, its politics, no less than the personal lives of its people. The Christian mission is thus to act out in the whole life of the whole world the confession that Jesus is Lord of all. The issue is that uh, that the church had in Rome is that they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus not as a private truth, like some little option to fill the compartment, but they proclaimed the gospel as public truth. Something that was true for all people, whether they saw it or not, and that's that Jesus is Lord. Um, I think I've got a slide here. Oh, yeah, it just says that, so. <laughs> I, you didn't need a slide for that, right? Like, it, it, it's, it's, it is a It is a very serious thing. It's a truth that works its way out in the lives of people and which, as it is held as a public truth, not a private truth, a public truth, something that that you really believe is ultimately true, it ends up challenging alternative public truths. It ends up challenging alternative ideas, systems, or ways of thinking about the world that are contradictory to it. 
so these truths, this, these, these, these truths, the Christian truths, the things that they believe, they, they, be, they begin to confront alternative truths, things embedded in philosophy, culture, politics, economics of the Roman world. Some, some, like the, the early Christians were known for their very strange ways in regards to a few things. Not, not as people who were trying to overturn Caesar through an overtly political party separatist kind of way, but they were overturning Roman culture simply by adopting the values of Christ over the values of Rome. That's why, like, like, like Roman in Roman culture, like. Um, Roman was a hypersexualized culture. Sex was like the, the primary activity, and, and it was celebrated so much. And like, like men were encouraged to have as many sexual partners as possible. And so there was a lot of babies born. And if, if a baby wasn't wanted by their father, then they would just be left to die, left exposed to the elements. And they would either be t- taken into the slave trade or just, just die. So, so, the, uh, so, so these, these Roman Christians, they come in and they start to live in a very different way, in a way that confronts the values of Rome, and they start to adopt in exposed infants. They're the only people who had ever done this in Rome. And they start to just care for people who Roman culture doesn't care for, right? That was their confrontation and their living out of a public truth, right? Because it's one thing for them to just say, oh, no, we just love people. And then it's another thing for them to say, oh, I see how you don't love people, and you leave those children to die in the elements. And so I'm just going to go and take it from you. And they're not doing this. They're not, they're, not, they're not knocking on the door and say, someone left this baby here. I guess I'll just take it. Right? They're not doing it in a judgy way. They're just saying, oh, there's a baby there. We care about people. Jesus values people, so we're just going to go ahead and take it. And then the Romans, after a little bit of time, they thought, are they suggesting that it's wrong? to let our babies die outside? That's really what we think is the right thing to do. And they start to feel a little judged. Not because the Christians are trying to make them feel judged. The Christians are just living as if their public truth is true for all people and that that baby that's not their baby actually has a value and so they're going to go and pick it up and care for it. And then the Romans start to say, well, we don't like to feel, we don't like to question our assumptions about what we can do with our lives. You people living your public truths, how rude are you? You get the tension that was coming out in Rome as these Christians rejected the values of Rome and the system of Rome and started to live the gospel as if, as if it were true for all people, true for them, binding on them, that Jesus is the authority and they're living their lives in accordance with his values and the things he cares about. It got awkward really quickly. Not because the church was trying to tear down Rome and tell them feel how awful they are and shame them and manipulate them, but they simply lived as if what they believed was true. And as they did that, the consequence was that the Romans felt as if, oh, these people have an alternative idea of what's true. And it made them feel awkward. And frankly, it's still going on. Right? Now, of course, Christians can be arrogant jerks. Did you know? <laughs> Shh. Christians can be arrogant jerks. Don't tell anyone. Sometimes. Sometimes we can, right? Because we think we get so caught up in the world's systems that we try to play the game within the box, and we try to manipulate the box and control everything in the box, right? But actually what we're just... Tr- 
called to do is just say, I just believe in a God who's over the box, and I'm just going to like act like he's over the box, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm just going to live my life accordingly. That's how we reject the powers. I mean, that's how we, how we live into a public truth of the gospel. We just say, okay, I mean, I get that there's power, and I get there's Rome or a government or whatever, and, you know, you do the things that you're supposed to do, but you don't do them thinking that they're ultimate and that they're the highest authority. The Christians in the early church were always respectful. In fact, like when there was persecution, like this guy, Tertullian, an early church father, gave his apologia, a long letter to, to Rome, and he basically just explained to Rome, he says, I don't get why you hate us so much, because here's the thing, like we're model citizens, we pay our taxes, we don't trash talk you, we don't go rob all the other temples, we just believe that we're obligated to trust God, and as we trust God, we actually like become really like loving people and kind people, and we think that's a virtue, not something to be persecuted. That's how the early Christians lived out their faith. They just, they didn't, again, try to tear Rome down. They just kind of realized Rome wasn't as big of a deal as it thought it was. And the, the bigger deal for them was to live as if what God says is true and reveals is true is actually true. And they would just be concerned with how they were living their lives, not how other people were living their lives, how they're going to live their lives. They're going to be very much caring about that. Okay. So I just want to, we got some, okay, don't worry, we talk a lot. Um, okay, so that was, that was then, right? That was how the Romans dealt with idolatry. The Roman Christians dealt with the idolatry of Rome. And it's easy for us to look 2,000 years in hindsight with, with the benefit of history and, you know, distance and critique Roman culture and idolatry, it is so much harder for us to critique our own idolatry in our own culture, right? For the same reason that it's difficult to ask a goldfish, assuming a goldfish can talk, to ask a goldfish what water is. A goldfish doesn't know what water is. A goldfish is just surrounded by water all the time. No awareness of water. <laughs> they don't know what dryness is either, but that's a different topic. Um, right? So, like, it's difficult for us to sit and say, okay, we, we see how they lived out their, the public truth, their commitment to the gospel. That's very easy. How do we do that ourselves now? Because idolatry is playing out in your life. You are stuck in the box in so many ways, and me too. All, it's, it's, it's always the work of Christians in every generation to, to interrogate and question, what is the box? What are the things that I am accepting as powers and authorities, principalities, and I'm acting as if they have ultimate truth, but they don't? We have to ask these questions of ourselves. Leslie Newbegin, who we, who we quoted earlier, he, he points out that our culture's box, modern culture's box, comes down to our ideas about four things. Science, technology, politics, and economics. That's the water we swim in. We just assume these things are just good and right because we are, as modern people, captured by a vision of progress and goodness and a good life that is tied up into science, technology, uh, politics, and economics. 
Now, I, I do think actually we're at the end of a period of modernity, right, where, where these things are falling apart. I mean, I'm not sure if you noticed there's been a little bit of a political kerfuffle in the West the last, I don't know, nine years, ten years? Yeah, something like that, right? So, so, so there's a lot going on here, but we tend to just assume that there are good things called science, technology, politics, and economics, and they're inviolable, and they're true, and there's stuff we don't know how to critique. Because Christian culture, Western culture, has, was formed with the influence of Christianity, and in a lot of ways, it has built a box around faith, and we are not aware of it. And it's in these things, science, technology, politics, and economics. And I think, honestly, the, the calling for us, the difficult calling for us as Christians is to question the box that's been built around us in these things. Um, I, and I want to just focus on one of them, because I, I think some of these are, are, are I, I realize that I just like opened up a can of worms and you were like, well, that's science, technology, politics. And you're like, you're going to go and you can think about that for hours and maybe you'll start to say, great is Artemis, the god of Ephesians, right? You, you'll get, you're going to really get <laughs> really worked up and I, I don't know why I'm defensive, but I'm mad right now. Can you talk about politics? So I'm not going to talk about politics because that's just not, I, I want to have a job tomorrow. No, no, I, I'm joking. We'll do that sometime because it is an election year. I'm like kind of like dreading it, but I'm like, I'm sorry. But let's talk about economics, right? I know it's not a giving message. I'm not allowed to turn this into a giving message. Don't, you know, say, throw the pen across the room. No checkbook for you. Um, it's not a giving message. But let's talk about economics because economics is probably the least controversial thing in our box culturally because it's just the thing that nobody, uh, unless you're a socialist, but everybody just kind of accepts, oh, well, the economy is what it is. Who could possibly do anything about it, right? It's, it's value neutral. See, the things that are the boxes, the things that are I idolatrous in our culture are the things that we say, well, there's no values going on in there. Like, they just are what they are. They're just powers. We can't, we can't do anything about them, right? Party politics. It just is what it is. Red or blue. Those are the only options you have, right? Technology, science. Well, AI is just happening, you know? All this stuff is just going to happen. There's nothing we do about it. We, we all have smartphones in our pockets. There's no way not to get those smartphones in our pockets. We're born with them. <laughs> they just were born, and they're in our pockets, and there's, you, you can't leave it away. If you walk away from it, you have to go and get it. That's not true. Right? So, so there's, there's things that we just assume are true in economics. Like, we are all beholden to economic realities. We think that they're ultimate. We think they're true. Raising your hands, how many people have a retirement account? I'm raising my hand, no judgment, right? I have a retirement account. How many people have a life insurance policy or did, and maybe it just recently lapsed or something, right? I did, yeah, yeah, I do. How many people here have uh, like an emergency savings fund? Okay, I'm not gonna ask you how much it is, but good for you, right? <laughs> um, look it, why do we all just assume that we must have these things? Because we're not dumb. Because we know one day we're going to retire, we have to pay our bills. That's inevitable. That's truth. That's life. We cannot question that. It is how the world works. It is the power under which we live. Isn't it? I, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, the point of this message is not that you shouldn't have life insurance and that you shouldn't have a retirement account and you shouldn't have all this stuff. Although 100 years ago, Christians really were vocal about life insurance being sin. I'm not saying they're right, but that really was doctrinally. Like, go, go and Google it. 
Like, it wasn't until a recent times that we just started to say, well, you have to have life insurance or else you're dumb, <laughs> right? But I have life insurance. I want to make that really clear. I'm not judging you. I have life insurance. <laughs> I eat a lot of hamburgers. I <laughs> so maybe I just worship hamburgers. Ooh. All right, Lord, I'm going to pray about that one. I'm on a diet. Anyways, I'm going to get this back on track, okay? Um, I'm just saying, like, like those are things we, we, we realize they're I- inevitable, right? Economics are just kind of this is the, way, the way the world works, and I'm not saying that's not true. But another question. How has saving for retirement felt the last three years? Anyone looked at their 401k lately? You ever go to the Tower of Terror uh, in MGM, right? That's how it's been. It's like you get to the top of the Tower of Terror, and the doors open up, you're saying, oh, it's beautiful, and then all of a sudden it goes, ah! And then you're like, is it, am I going to die? Is it ever going to stop? I don't know. It just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. That's my experience of the past three years in my IRA. So, right? That's fun. It hasn't, but the point is, it hasn't felt great. And there have been times where I freak out about it. And the older I get, You know, I'm, I'm almost 40, and I'm supposed to have $300,000 in my retirement account. I don't. <laughs> not, not even really that close to that at all. So, yeah, right? But, but you know, because that's the thing. It's not that that stuff is bad, but it's sometimes that stuff keeps me up at night, and that is bad. I know that's an idol, because it becomes something that I something that I start to get anxious about. The idol of economics is strong in the United States of America. We are the wealthiest nation in history. And we would be naive to not understand that there is idolatry. There's a box that we've been put in that we don't question around issues of economics. And that it is, in some ways, competing for allegiance in our hearts. It is, some ways, working its way out to ultimate truth, in some ways. And I know that. I experience that because I start to get anxious about it when I've already been told by God over and over again that He will meet my needs. And so if I have a promise from God, and I start to doubt it because I believe other things, that's when I can recognize that I have idols in my heart. Right? And I put Jesus in a little compartment of a box and that he doesn't want to be in that little compartment. He wants my trust to be so full and so robust that it would look at my IRA and say, Ha! My God is greater than you, tiny number. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be fine in the end because I can trust God. (laughs) Next slide, Dave. There is a difference between powerless faith and powerful faith. Powerless faith stays in the box. 
powerful faith shuts down, not just, it doesn't go to an alternative idol. It says, idols are nothing. And the work of faith is digging out the stuff that I believe more than God's word. And I know I believe it because in my heart, I feel it in my body, I feel it in my mind, it's the stuff that keeps me up, that I fret about, <laughs> ignoring the promises of God. our choices around money, and my choices around money, are driven by fear and what I feel must be because of the box that I live in and I assume to be ultimately the truth, they're not driven by faith. So much of what I assume to be true about money is driven by fear. Fear that I won't have enough for tomorrow, that my children won't have enough, fear that um, I won't properly secure my security in life through my economic choices. But do we see how that totally competes with the promises of God to be our security and to be our enjoyment and to be God? And it's not a simple thing. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we'll just don't have money. That's not, that's not it. In the same way that the, Ro the, the Roman Christians didn't say, well, just no more Rome. We're just going to get rid of Rome. That, that's not it. What they did is they say, okay, we, we understand Rome is just sort of a reality, and we'll pay taxes to Caesar, and we'll, we'll do this stuff. But we won't let our hearts and our loves and our worries get caught up in the stuff of money. That's how we will live out our public truth and keep ourselves free from idols. That's what the Ephesians did. You know, it was a, it was a huge thing for the Ephesians to go and burn their magic books. What they were doing is saying— we get that our, our culture has taught us that we need to be concerned about the spiritual powers and stuff, but we're actually putting our faith in the one who is greater than all of that. And so we're just actually going to burn these books, which is kind of disrespectful of the books and the culture, right? It's just saying, you know, we're just going to totally turn our backs on them because we don't think they have any power over us anymore. You don't have to stop having money. You don't need to stop saving for your uh, retirement or, or stop uh, cancel your life insurance policy. That's not what I'm saying. But you do need to question and consider and work to free yourself of the, the, the power that those things have. Because I'll tell you from my own experience, I, I know I'm a pastor. And it's really funny being a pastor because everybody thinks you're like super spiritual all the time. And I'm a pretty normal guy. I think I'm even below average in terms of my normality. Um, I was never in college, like, I, it's, it's weird that I'm a pastor. Like, I wasn't the guy who was going to be a pastor when I was in college. Even among, like, I, I, after I kind of, my first terrible semester, which is not, not good, nobody was like, yeah, definitely not going to be a pastor. But then I sort of straightened up it a little bit, but I still wasn't, like, most likely to be pastor material. And in fact, a lot of the, the people who were uh, did become pastors, and a lot of them aren't Christians anymore. <laughs> um, I, which is not like, like just, hey man, God's grace is amazing. <laughs> because I do not deserve uh, to be a pastor. I don't even deserve to be a Christian. But I'll tell you this one thing that Molly and I have done for 20 years now. Almost. We have worked to rid ourselves of the idol of and we've done it so well, we really don't have any. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not asking for sympathy. I signed up for it. We are both children from wealthy families. So we knew what we were giving up. 
we did it. But it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt along the way. Like, there are times when I'm just like, oh, look at my peers. I'm just like, I don't want to see their eyes glow. Because <laughs> it'll just make me feel, I'll, I'll have these, like, wake up in the middle of the night thing. But, but I start to feel like, like the, the economic worries. But, but we've been working to deal with it over time. And, and church, I've got to tell you, I am not a spiritual, very spiritual person. But because we've done this, I've had powerful faith. Because I've tried to be obedient in this one thing. Because God just gave us enough awareness very young in our life and in our marriage, and we got on the same page about it, that we needed to deal with this stuff, and so, so, so we have. And it's been the only thing that's carry, carrying me through till today. It's not that I feel great things for Jesus, <laughs> or think great things for Jesus. But we have, and this is, again, I'm, tr I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but we've been taking taken the idol of money seriously because we've known what it is and seen it for ourselves and we just have tried to give it away or tried to, to free ourselves from it. And it's, it's yielded fruit. It's the only thing that still sustains us. Okay, so um, just, just to, to get a practical, really practical, how do you do that? I've got, I got another slide here. Um, how do you free yourself from these powers? Like, how do, you, how do you give up, like, powerless faith that's saved in a compartment? Is number one, you have to figure out where the powers are that have a hold of you. God, in His grace, when I, when I was young, like, and, and Molly as well, like, like showed us that we were kind of caught up with money and status and prestige. And so we decided to set ourselves on a path, which every, like, <laughs> let's say, down a hole, which keeps getting deeper and deeper. Like, we can't get out at some point. Like, and I'm not talking about debt. I'm just saying, like, at some point, the less money you have, it's harder to get more, right? That's the way economics works, right? Diminishing returns. Um, you have to figure out where the powers have a hold on you, and you can do that by asking yourself this question, what do you fear? There are things that you fear that you shouldn't fear, and that's not to make you feel bad. Everybody fears things. Those things are there so that you can, uh, you can realize, okay, I'm actually kind of beholden to some power start confronting these powers, you just ask yourself, what am, I, what am I afraid of? I I keep going down this path of trying to be um, free of the idol of money, but it's a very fearful path at every step. It doesn't, it's, <laughs> this is the funny thing, I'm not less afraid now that I have less money and less time to make it back up. I'm actually more afraid. But God's faithfulness So I'm more excited that because I've, I've known God and I've seen him do enough things over time. I know that he will take care of me despite the fact that my power is less than it ever has been. But my confidence in God is greater. I just want to make very clear. So I'm not saying if you begin to uh, confront an idol, suddenly everything's going to work out. It's not like, oh, you just rid yourself of love for money, and then God will give you tons of money. No, he'll probably give you less and less and less. <laughs> but he'll be more faithful, and you'll know that and be reminded of it. You'll teach your body and your mind that. You'll be quicker to remind yourself of it. So now my freakouts of, of money are less frequent and less long. And usually it comes down to just my wife saying, we signed up for this. <laughs> she did that the other, uh, like, like a year ago, and I was like, 
We made this bed. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Because God's with us in the middle of it. Okay, so, so you figure out where the powers have hold of you, and you ask yourself what your fear. Then number two, you deliberately transgress that power through acts of faith. Right? Like, the only way to confront false powers is to just say, Oh, this is the line I can't cross. Oh, this line, this one, I can't, I, I'm fearing a crossing this thing. Well, Jesus is Lord. Things are still alive. Things are still okay, right? Not in arrogance, not in defiance, but taking the next step of faith to teach myself that God's promises are truer than the threats and things that I fear in the world. It's the work of faith, guys. It's how you confront powers. It's how you deal with idolatry. And it needs to be guided by the Word and the Spirit. Don't just do dumb things. Don't just do dumb things. That's not faith. Say, what has God promised me in the Word? What is the Holy Spirit leading me to? And be obedient. Because you will have points of conflict between things that you fear and obedience to Jesus, and you confront these powers by choosing obedience little steps of obedience each time. Not giant leaps, not dumb things. Little steps of obedience over time will lead to powerful faith. And the final step is repeat, probably for decades. Politics, economics, technology, philosophy, culture. Putting Jesus as Lord in your life is just going to be consistently finding the things where those things have power over you, where you've accepted them, transgressing those boundaries in faith, according to the Word, according to Spirit, and just keeping at it. Keeping at it. Keeping at it. Led by faith, empowered by the Spirit, filled with joy, more and more excited, that as you leave behind these old things that you thought were so ultimate and true, that actually you're finding that what's ultimate and true is God's word and his love and his care for you. It's a good way to be. That's why these Ephesians had such an amazing testimony. That's why in Romans 3, 1, where, um, not Romans, Revelation 3, 1, the other R, um, Jesus is writing letters to churches. He writes the Ephesian church. He says, he, he actually... Doesn't, doesn't go hard on them, but he says, return to your first love, because he recognizes, man, when they were doing this thing, freeing themselves of idols, they were being led by love. They were falling in love with Jesus more and more, and it was leading to joy and the power of the Spirit and amazing things to the point where we look back at it now and we say, that's the high water mark of the early church. That's where the Holy Spirit was doing amazing things, and we are invited into it again. And it's this work of obedience, defying these powers, confronting these powers, leaving idols behind, not accepting the little box we put Jesus into. Worship team can come on up here. We're going to close out. But I just want to encourage you. You know what, guys? I, I know that this uh, message, like, like, it's hard to talk about hard things. Did you know that? It's hard to talk about hard things. <sighs> but it's worthwhile. And if I've said anything that was offensive this morning, like, like please forgive me. Uh, I say stupid things often. 
Um, but I want this loud and clear. Nothing is keeping you. If you, if you trust in Jesus, nothing is keeping you from an overflowing, joyful life in Christ. Except, <laughs> like, not really wanting it. If we, if we want it, we need to start to pray about the things that we fear, asking God for the wherewithal, the revelation, the wisdom, the insight, follow through with living the kind of life where we put him first. And I'm my greatest obstacle to that. My laziness, my desire for comfort, my desire for power, for security. I accept false security constantly in my life. And the, re the repeating is coming back and realizing, oh, I've created a new problem for myself. I've started to worship another false thing. Look at my heart, like Tim Keller says, is an idol factory. I just come up with a new one when I finally got rid of the old one. I just come up with a new one. And it's just like the work of faith is just continuing to deal with those things, deal with those things over and over again. And the invitation is power, not power to just like, ah, I'm like a genie who can control things, right? That's not the kind of power it is. It's to be caught up in the power of God and to experience your life as just like standing in a river of grace, God's kindness and his promises, and just showing up and being made true. And he's providing for you and he's caring for you despite the perilous circumstances you seem to be putting yourself into, despite the things that you do that you say everyone else doesn't understand. You say, well, but I'm, I'm doing it because I really feel like in order to live out my faith in public, I have to do these things. Lord, that stuff is just not of you. 
but because you have so much more for us. You have power and grace and anointing and overflowing joy and peace, God. Lord, let us unblock the rivers, like pull the, the, the sediment that's got in the way. Take those things away that have dammed up the flow of grace in our lives, Lord. Fill us with your faith, Lord. Fill us with power. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Teach us the obedient work of taking the powers away, the things that compartmentalize you, and giving you everything, Jesus, at a great cost to us, Lord. Lord, let it cost us something to worship you. Lord, teach us to give ourselves away. Because we're just not Let's worship, worship, worship together.